Amy Grant, Baby Baby. You know, honestly, this is one of those songs, and hear me out, because I know this is going to sound a little weird, but this is one of those songs that every time I hear it, and I don't really hear it all that often these days, but when I hear it, it always makes me think of my brother, and I guess specifically the summer of 1991, when... No, I don't think this song really counted as, like, a new release at that time. Like, if we go by the strictest dictionary definition of the word. But, guys, songs, especially back then, would just stay on the radios for fucking ever. You know? And so, the idea that this Amy Grant song, Baby Baby, it was still big during the summer of 1991, even though I want to say this was actually released, like, during... This may have actually been released during uh, January of 1991. I guess I probably should have double-checked that before starting this, you know, this recording. But the way it goes in my mind, it was definitely still huge on the radio during the summer of 1991. And I guess that's the point. I don't know why, but there was something about this song that just kind of captured my brother's imagination. Or, more likely, there was something about Amy Grant on a personal level that captured my brother's attention, I guess. But either way, you know, that's that's really the my, my clearest memory of it. You know, basically, we were all in the car, and we were taking my brother to one of his uh, Little League baseball games. And this song uh, came on the radio, and he was, I want to say he was 15 at the time. Uh, that this are about to turn 15 and there's something melodramatic that goes on in the teenage imagination that when they hear a song they like on the radio it's not that the radio station is playing a song that they like it's no it's nothing like that it's more like stop everybody shut up and listen the universe is playing my song you know and that's kind of melodramatic type of stuff and it's just a very it's a teenage thing. It's like a teenager thing in general, I guess, to behave that way. I mean, people always want to associate it just with teenage girls, but I don't know. I mean, I think teenage guys kind of do it too, at least as often. And so that was kind of the atmosphere at which we arrived at at his baseball game. And, you know, I, I really... I, I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there. The way it goes in my mind is... It, it's really a crush on Amy Grant that motivated my brother's love of this song. Because, I mean, the song itself, whatever, you know? So, anyway. And that's my memory of Amy Grant's Baby Baby. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and... What I've been doing lately is working my way through a mega series that's all about the cover date January of 1991. And honestly, the reason for that is as a, as a, I guess a decade of comics, the 1990s definitely gets a pretty bad rap in most cases, right? But when people talk about 90s comics in that kind of pejorative sense of the word, nine times out of ten, what they actually mean is early 90s comics, you know, basically from 1991 going right on through to some arbitrary point, usually towards the beginning or the middle of 1994. In the pejorative sense, when people say 
90s comics or that's a 90s comic book idea or some such typically that's the that's the range of time that they're talking about you know and on the one hand yes there is a little bit of truth to the idea that comics or at least some comics at the beginning of the 90s kind of sucked i would never say otherwise but the way that some people tell it you know you'd think number one that the entire comic book industry sucked until i don't pick a date like 1997 or 1998 or something like that or whenever kingdom come came out you know it's there's a lot of revisionism that tends to go on with all of this stuff number one and number two the majority of people who make fun of the early 90s guys don't believe the hype they were buying this stuff just as avidly as you were you know and this idea that they want to go back and rewrite history now well Sorry, Charlie, doesn't work that way, you know? So anyway, as much as anything, what I'm trying to do is not so much shine a positive light on the early 90s, because as I say, I mean, some of the stuff, it rightly takes a certain a certain amount of abuse, right? And it's, it's, it's all de kind of deservedly so, and I would never say otherwise. But this idea that everything sucked back then is just not true. And so what I'm trying to do is basically give you listeners a little bit of a sample of what was happening in January of 1991, just so we can determine for ourselves what comics were really like back then. You know, because your, your memory has a funny way of playing tricks on you. You know, memory is such a subjective thing to begin with anyway. That to say that you remember X, Y, or Z, well, that's not necessarily an indication that X, Y, or Z even happened, as I shall be revisiting. I hope I remember to revisit this before the end of this episode, but my point is to say that your memory is not always the most reliable thing in the entire world, you know? If, you're, if your memory was made up of nothing but objective facts, well, that'd be one thing, but all too often, what you remember are feelings, what you remember are sensations, sights, sounds, colors, uh, smells. You know, you don't necessarily remember at 225 on January the 16th, 1991, at the stroke of four o'clock in the afternoon, you were in the bathroom taking a dump. You know, you don't necessarily remember that stuff, you know. So that's one of the reasons why memory is just such a subjective thing, you know. And so, like I say, my I guess my agenda here, it's not necessarily to say that, oh, the, the, the 1990s comics, they all sucked, or, or what are you talking about? No, the, the 90s comics, they were all awesome. No, it's to give you an accurate impression of what these comics really were, you know? So anyway, that's all that stuff. Now, as it relates to today's episode, what I'm going to be talking about is Green Lantern number eight. Now, for those of you who have been somewhat keeping track, or for that matter, for those of you who haven't been keeping track, what I've tried to do is give a, like, like I was saying a second ago, just kind of give a little bit of a balanced sort of presentation to all of this. The idea being <clears throat> that I can talk about a DC comic book one week, <clears throat> talk about a Marvel comic the next week, back to DC, back to Marvel, wash, rinse, repeat, right? And the reason for that is Left to my own devices, guys, I'm a DC guy, you know, always have been. And at this point, I, I probably always will be, you know. And so if 
if what I want to do is give you guys an accurate picture of what the of of what 1990s comics, or at least comics released with the cover date January of 1991, give you an an accurate idea of of what comics were truly like back then. Well, if I stick only to the stuff that I like the best or that I'm most familiar with, that's not necessarily going to be insightful, you know, in terms of, I guess, the reality of what the comic book industry was up to during the cover date of January of 1991, right? So that's the reason I'm doing all of this. You know, so what I've endeavored to do is just alternate DC one week, Marvel the next week, like I said, and just kind of diversify this show a little bit because, you know, like I, you know, as I was saying a minute ago, typically what I do is I talk about the stuff that I like and the stuff that I don't like or the stuff I'm less familiar with, I tend mostly to avoid. And so the idea is to just kind of broaden the canvas a little bit, you know, broaden my horizons and hopefully take some of you along for the ride. So nothing more complicated than that. And so, like I said a second ago, today's comic is Green Lantern, Number eight. Cover date, of course, is January of 1991. On sale date, as Mike's Amazing World would have it, is November the 20th, 1990. Cover price is $1. Artist is Pat Broderick. Writer is Gerard Jones. Letterer is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Anthony Tallon. Editor is Andrew Helfer. Story title is Bringing It Together and Story Synopsis is as follows. With no power left in their Green Lantern rings, Hal Jordan and Guy Gardner attempt to distract a group of charging aliens until the arrival of help in the form of the Zudarians led by uh, Hal's new friend, Tomar II. But when Tomar II finds himself cornered by one of the beasts, Hal runs to the rescue, hoping that bluffing about his ring's power will discourage the beast from attacking. Suddenly, Rose Harden and some other humans arrive, firing guns at the beasts, which sends them running off into the distance. Rose is visibly shaken that her house was destroyed. Still, Guy admires Hal's courage in making the bluff, and Tomar, too, is grateful. With the aliens taken care of, Hal turns his attention between the gardens of the universe and the insane, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this person's name, the insane Appa Ali Apsa. With the help of uh, Pazu Pender Pole, geez, I just love these names, Hal realizes that the Guardians are sacrificing their fighting power in order to maintain Oa's gravity and protect the transplanted cities that had been put there. Hal convinces Pazu Pender Pole to tell the other Guardians to give up on the gravitational field in order to conserve their power. Then, Hal uses Jon Stewart's mind connection with Apsa Ali Apsa, or, sorry, Appa Ali Apsa, to project feelings of loneliness into the rogue guardian's mind. The result of seeing the cities transplanted onto the planet being torn from its surface, combined with feelings of loneliness, leads Appa Ali Apsa to release his control of Oa's power. The guardians then blast him into smithereens with their power, killing him in the process. The guardians then decide to rebuild Oa's central power battery and restore the Green Lantern Corps. They decide that they're going to select one of each of the remaining Green Lanterns to either recruit new corpsmen, rebuild Oa, or return to Earth as Green Lantern of Sector 2814. Guy and John discuss the future while Hal returns to, the, returns to help Rose and her son rebuild their house. 
He promises to return to, to visit them, but that he's inexorably both Green Lantern and Hal Jordan and never just one or the other. With that in mind, Hal declares his midlife crisis is over and reaffirms his status as a Green Lantern. The end. So, what did I think? Well, this is, this is uh, like I said, Green Lantern number eight, and actually represents the conclusion of really uh, two different things. First, there was this sort of personal crisis or midlife crisis or however you want to look at it that Hal had been going through literally since Green Lantern number one that finally got brought to fullness here. So that that particular aspect of things, it gets resolved here. But obviously the other thing that gets resolved, or perhaps less obviously, is uh, it's basically a multi-part story. Again, it's about this insane guardian, Appa Aliapsa, who basically went completely crackers and started moving cities around and all of this stuff. And this is this was basically a multi-part story that basically saw a lot of shit go down. And in the end, well, this is the end. So, but this is also sort of a springboard, if memory serves, into a a Guy Gardner sort of well, not like a mini series, but sort of like a mini series within a series, I suppose. There was a the the this next issue, uh, Green Lantern number nine, is basically part one of what I want to what I want to say is this kind of four part team up story between Guy Gardner and Nort where basically they take center stage in Green Lantern for a couple of issues. And then after that, things get back to normal. Hal swings back into action, and everything is okay after that. So it's also, though, the springboard, and again, I'm going off memory here, but I swear to think this is accurate. This is also this the springboard for the Green Lantern Mosaic series, uh, which basically focused on Jon Stewart and... I guess pretty much, you know, how he was going to manage being the Green Lantern of, as the name might suggest, this, it's not even a planet. It's just like a mosaic of cities. You know, that's the title of the comic, Mosaic. You know, how he would basically handle all of that. You know, what is he going to do? How do you be the Green Lantern to, number one, a bunch of different alien races, and then number two, a Green Lantern that basically is supposed to interface and connect with all of these different aliens and all of these different cultures and and all of that kind of stuff, right? And I never really read very much of the Green Lantern Mosaic series because, guys, I'm just going to put it out there, that was just a weird fucking book. And at least when I was a kid, my taste mostly tended more towards that kind of middle of the road, more mainstream type of superhero type stuff. And Mosaic was just a little bit too off the beaten path, at least for me. And, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people joke that Mosaic really should have, you know, in in retrospect, Mosaic really should have been considered a, I guess, a Vertigo title. And you can't really do that because it deals with mainstream DC Universe continuity and concepts and stuff like that. So this book couldn't be the Vertigo book that it perhaps wanted to be, but it couldn't be normal enough to fit into the mainstream DC Universe either. So what the hell is it? Nobody knows, you know, and that could be why it didn't stick around all that long. 
when all is said and done. So I don't know. Anyway, to get into uh, you know this issue properly, though, it's actually a pretty effective cover because it's basically a bunch of dead guardians strewn across the, the ground with Appa, Appa Ali. I'm just going to call the guy Appa. With Appa standing uh, standing atop, he's raising his fists in triumph. And then you see the these sort of disembodied ghostly heads of John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and Hal Jordan just looking on in absolute horror at, at, at what's happening here. You know, this sort of uh, just mass murderer of all of these all of these guard, guardians. And it, it's, it's a pretty effective cover, I must say. So anyway, get in, getting into the story proper, though. You know, one of the artists I truly don't think I've ever talked about on this show before is is Pat Broderick. And honestly, I mean, I'm of the opinion that Pat Broderick, I don't think he ever really got his full due as a Batman artist. And that's a real shame. But I I can't help thinking that maybe one of the reasons for all of that is because of the fact that when Pat Broderick did his run on Batman, and God knows whenever he's doing his run on Green Lantern right here, I guess the bottom the, the bottom line is comic book printing technology just wasn't up to snuff at this particular time. You know, the printing processes that DC used to, to print comics, it was so cheap. I'm guessing this was to keep costs down, but it was so cheap that it didn't always do a very good job of rendering the art on the page. And so there's a very fair argument that the art that we're seeing on the page is functional. It gets the job done. It does everything that it's supposed to do. But in terms of being, I guess, representative of what Pat Broderick is capable of as an artist, I'm not entirely sure that comic book printing at this time really conveys all of that. And honestly, it's not like Pat Broderick is unique in all of that. I mean, I think the same thing could be said of, gee, uh, Jim Aparo, Dan Jurgens, M.D. Bright. I mean, name a, name just about anybody who was big and publishing uh, uh, comics at the time. And it's just not, it's just not a very good, a very good representation of them. I don't think so. I guess, you know, maybe that's one sort of nitpicky sort of starting point, right? But I guess another thing that's that's going on in all of this is the what we can see of Pat Broderick's art, it's actually incredibly well done. I mean, you can see right here on page one, the rivulets of sweat that's, that are running down uh, Hal's face, his, his forehead, his, uh, his nose his his lips his cheeks i mean uh he's got the five o'clock shadow going i mean this is a guy who's number one he's just beat to hell he's exhausted but number two i mean his hair is hanging down it's all straggly and hanging down in his face and i don't know i mean more than any other any other comic book character at, at least at this time and what i mean is i guess post green lantern number eight but before Emerald Twilight. Hal Jordan just seemed a very Captain Kirk-like. Well, maybe not Kirk. I don't know. But he had a, at least a few characteristics in common, with, at least with how I've always thought of the William Shatner version of Captain Kirk. You know, I mean, yeah, he's capable of falling in love and getting laid and all that stuff. But he's a man who 
I guess, has principles that sometimes require him to overrule policy. And so you can see that determination really on how through this entire issue, but specifically, you know, that same kind of grit and determination on pages one and two. And it's just Hal's body language, his mannerisms. You know, this is a guy who on the one hand is horrified by what he's seeing, but he's determined to save the day however he can. And that's just a very Kirk-like attitude, in my opinion, you know, that no matter how far he's been beaten down, there are no no-win scenarios. You know, there is a way to win. Hal just has to find it, you know, and he's just, he's not, and this is the point, he's not the type to accept defeat, you know, and I dig that, you know, I like that. So anyway, uh, getting into this issue properly, though, moving ahead into uh, page three, you know, this is where the worm sort of turns in this comic, that if you're not really, if you haven't been following the story up to this moment, then the arrival of Tomar 2, it's this kind of what the fuck moment that, that happens. It's like, who the hell is this guy? Where are these, you know, where are, uh, where, where does Tomar 2 and all of his buddies, where do they come from? What's going on here? And it's pretty clear that in short order, you know, they're here to save the day against all of these demonic looking minion kind of things. And these sort of rocky, lava-y type, type of creatures, it's just, it's, it's weird. If you don't already know who they are, though, it gets a little, it gets kind of weird, I guess, just to, to see them just pop up out of nowhere. But for as weird as that is, keeping in mind, we're talking about the planet Oa here, right? Out of nowhere comes these, comes the cavalry. Uh, they're riding in the back of, a, of an, like a, it looks like a Dodge pickup truck firing off shotguns. These are humans who are driving to the rescue. And again, it's like, what the fuck is going on here? And that's one of the things that I kind of like about Gerard Jones's work on the, on, uh, I was about to say the flash. <laughs> Gerard Jones's work on Green Lantern is that there was always this possibility, you know, there were, you know, anything can happen in any given issue. And this is a good instance of what I'm talking about. You know, you have this kind of redneck posse driving around shooting aliens on Oa in a human pickup truck and they're firing off their rifles and shotguns and stuff. It's just like so weird. <laughs> so anyway. From there, uh, basically what we see, and this is getting into, I guess, really more of the, the bottom of page six, the Guardians are trying and failing to, to uh, uh, defeat Appa, and that's, that's just, not, just not working. Uh, they're, really, they're, they're dying by, it looks like, by the twos. And, I mean, you've only got so many Guardians to go around, and then after that... Oa is well and truly fucked. So what now? And I guess I just kind of like that. You know, the the stakes that are being that are being played out here. This isn't this isn't small scale stuff. I mean, if this guy really does manage to capture the entire combined power of the Green Lantern Corps, or I guess more accurately, the Central Power Battery, yikes! I truly don't know who in the galaxy is possibly equipped and qualified to take on that kind of a threat, you know, uh, called dark side, I guess. I don't know. So I don't know. It's, I'm not the world's most knowledgeable Green Lantern fan. I enjoy Green Lantern just as a property, but I'm conversant enough to understand that this isn't small potatoes. You know, if, if ba basically if, if, 
Appa is successful, literally nobody is safe. And the horror of that, it's really well done. I think it's right here at the bottom of page seven, when the full implications of this thing are starting to settle in for Hal. You know, again, the shock on his face, it's just incredibly well done by Pat Broderick, you know? And I don't know, it's, you can just see the horror as he starts considering the full implications of this thing. What does defeat here really mean? Not just for us, but now for the wider universe. And he's starting to get a, a pretty, good, pretty good idea of that. So anyway, this is basically the moment when the heroes have got to decide to, I guess, just belly up and get it done. You know, you've got to fight back however you can. So basically, at the bottom of page 10, what you have here is Hal coming up with this is the ultimate Hail Mary pass. You know, basically release your hold on gravity. You know, uh, tell them, he's basically, what he's saying is, tell to, to this Guardian, tell them to do the opposite, to sabotage it, to try to blow the atmospheres into space. If my plan works, I mean, we have to gamble, Master. There, There's no time to be prudent, you know? And so that's what ends up happening. They give it a go, and... Oh God! And this is this is just another neat little move. This is at uh, the top of page twelve. This sort of three-panel sequence where Hal runs up and uh, basically finds John Stewart just laying on the ground, and you can just kind of picture it. He's running at top speed, and then he just hits his knees and slides to a stop right beside John. It's just really well done. I love that. Picks uh, John up, starts uh, slapping him across the face. You know, wake up, come to it. You know, I need you, John. I need you, John. I know you're in there. Reach for me. And basically what he does is he's turning John's mental connection to Appa back in on itself so that Appa is the one who's basically feeling whatever John tells him to feel, thinking whatever John tells him to think. And again, I mean, considering the fact that it had been established earlier in the story that Appa isn't going to be easily defeated by force of arms. This is probably the only way there was to defeat him. And I kind of like the fact that it doesn't necessarily come down to, you know, who uses their Green Lantern wing, ring the best. You know, it. what it really comes down to is, as anything with Green Lantern ultimately should, rather than a physical struggle, it comes down to a contest of wills, in a sense. And what it, the question becomes... Is Jon Stewart's will more powerful than Appa's? And we get the answer to that in pretty short order because uh, on page 14 we see, yeah, in fact, it is. You know, as powerful as Appa might be, well, when it comes to willpower, no, it's all Jon Stewart all the way and back. And and again, I mean, I, look, guys, I'm no artist. You know, I don't know, you know, how hard it is to to draw stuff like this. I mean, I assume it's a colossal pain in the balls, but I don't know that from firsthand experience, but the amount of detail and energy, I mean, just here on page 15, uh, you know, all of the energy crackles and stuff that are going on, the close-ups of the guardian as they uh, set their attention on their enemy and just basically blast them into oblivion. And it's just incredibly well done. And then it ends, obviously, at the bottom of page 16, when Appa just collapses in on himself, falls over dead. And after that, everything just pretty much gets back to normal. And I guess the reason that 
I kind of regret the comic book printing processes that were being used at this time is I I'm operating under the assumption that Pat Broderick's work doesn't look as good as it probably would if better printing techniques were used, you know, with the lighting, the shading, the lines and all the stuff that that uh, Broderick tossed in. And it does kind of make me want to want to know what exactly would this thing look like if it were to be reprinted today, you know, or for that matter, is that even possible? You know, are we stuck with what we have? You know, I mean, are the original negatives that DC used, are they just borked? So I don't know. It's, it's worth asking, I guess. I don't even know if this story has been reprinted to be bluntly honest with you. I guess, again, another thing I probably should have checked on, but, uh, irrespective, you know, I just would love to see this printed and just uh, a higher quality process. And, and, and again, like another good example of what I'm talking about actually is right here on page 17, you know, the, it just looks like the printing process. It's just not up to what Broderick wanted to do with the art on this page. Um, what, and by that, what I mean is if you look at house face and panel three on uh, page 17, or if you look look at uh, Guy Gardner coming in for a landing at the bottom of the page, it looks fine, I guess, based on I, you know what comics looked like in ni- 1991. But I can't help thinking that a better and more refined printing process, it's just that would have been what the doctor ordered, I think. So anyway, now following that, we basically get... A little bit of exposition going on between uh, the Guardians and uh, the uh, human Green Lanterns. And basically, it's the Guardians, not for the first time, having to be humbled and learning that, you know what? Maybe they don't have all the answers, you know? And I, I've always kind of assumed that the Guardians are a little bit Vulcan-like in their detachment from emotion and assuming I'm right what I've always kind of I guess extrapolated from that is the guardians have always found it mildly irritating to be around humans because of how emotional we are and especially the uh, Guy Gardner and Hal Jordan John Stewart well he keeps himself in check pretty well but Hal Jordan and God knows Guy Gardner they're a little bit more prone to acting out one might say and I always thought that that would be just very taxing for the for the Guardians to be around, you know? And admitting error in front of people they consider to be just so inferior to them, I've always assumed that would... Geez, that's just got to cut like a knife for these Guardians. So anyway, but that's... We, we get plenty of that on page 18. And then again, on page 19, why? Why, why, why can't we get a better quality print job? Of this, you know, the the subtleties of the expressions on all of the human characters' faces here, it's fine for what it is, but it's I just can't shake the suspicion this is not exactly what Pat Broderick wanted the art to be, you know. So I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't exactly have Pat Broderick's ear to ask him about that, but I've always, every time I've ever read specifically these issues going up to number eight, I've always just assumed that. It maybe looks okay, but it's not exactly what he intended, you know? So, anyway. Moving on from there, we get into 
at the bottom of page 20, and it's basically Hal hanging out with Rose. And of all of Hal's girlfriends, I mean, apart from Carol Ferris, apart from, you know, the obvious one like her, I've always kind of thought that Rose was one of those characters that Hal could have fallen in love with. You know, he could have spent the rest of his life with if he'd allowed himself to. You know, if her circumstances had permitted it and had his circumstances permitted it. You know, the fan theory, or at least the fan consensus that seems to have the most cachet is Hal and Rose had, I guess, sort of coincidental needs with one another. But this wasn't going to be long term type of material, uh, material, you know, they weren't going to be they were okay for each other right now. But in, in the long term, I mean, Hal would have ultimately wanted something else. And Rose would have ultimately wanted something else. And I'm not saying that I agree with that, because obviously I don't. But I guess one of the things that I kind of like about at least that interpretation is the fact that, you know, guys, that's life. You know, I mean, at least when I was younger, I had girlfriends that I couldn't imagine a long term future with. But man, at the time that she and I were together. I needed her, but loved her and wanted a future with her. Not really. You know, I don't think that would have worked. So I don't get me wrong. I like that interpretation, you know, of Hal and Rose being kind of like ships in the night that they needed each other for some temporary comfort. But in the end, they both knew it would have been wrong. I disagree with that theory, but I do like it because it at least shows some thought on everybody's part. But I guess the main reason that I could I could have seen them staying together permanently is Rose would have been stability for Hal, you know, in a way that Carol Ferris just would never have been able to offer, you know, on her best day. Carol Ferris is two minutes away from becoming a star sapphire again, you know, whereas Rose is just a normal human woman living a normal human life with her normal human son. And when push comes to shove, I think that's what Hal Jordan ultimately wants. He wants as much normalcy as he can get in his personal life because his superhero life is full to overflowing with all kinds of weirdness. You know, I think how would put a premium on domestic tranquility, you know? So anyway, whatever happened, happened. And apparently what we're supposed to believe is that Hal ultimately went on to marry Carol Ferris. I've just, and I don't even mind that so much. I just think Rose is a better candidate. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, then finally at the, uh, at the bottom of, or actually on all, I should say of page 22, we get this just really nice money shot of, Hal in full Green Lantern gear soaring through the clouds of Oa. And it's just really well done. You know, I kind of think of this as the Superman 3 moment of this issue. You remember that bit in Superman 3 where Clark in the junkyard, he just tears his shirt open. And it's this really big triumphal moment of him reclaiming, I guess, the purity of what Superman has always been about. And I think a similar kind of sentiment is apparent in this just money shot right here on, on page 22. It's really well done. And it's one of those big splash pages where the artist feels the need to, to sign it. And 
in this case, you know, this it's a really, it's very much a uh, deserved moment, you know, not just for goings-on in this issue, or for that matter, goings-on in this storyline of the insane guardian, but also what exactly it's, what exactly this title has been up to, you know, since the first issue going right on through to, to page 22 of this issue. And it's, it's a big moment and it's one that's well-deserved. I mean, Gerard Jones earned this moment. Pat Broderick earned this moment, you know? So really well done. I just dig it. I mean, it, it works from the standpoint of just being a really neat looking piece of art, but it also has story resonance, you know, with the characters and with the story, you know, goings on in, in this issue, as I say, and with the storyline, very well done and very much deserved, I think. And the reason that you're playing, that you're playing, <laughs> you get the idea it's a little late here, guys. The reason that you, you guys are listening to uh, Mark Cohn's uh, Walking in Memphis is, number one, I just kind of like the song. Number two, it was, it, it again relates to this whole 1991 shtick that I'm playing with. And I guess in relation to that, you know, your, your memory can be a little bit of a, as I was saying earlier in this episode, memory can be a very subjective thing. And for some reason, I remembered hearing this song in 1989 and in early on in 1990, but your memory, not always very reliable because this song wasn't even released until 1991, actually. So 1991. And so I guess to tie it back to you know the premise of what this series is all about, sometimes people remember certain eras of comics as being worse than they were or better than they were. And I remembered hearing this song in a time and in a place when that was impossible for it to have happened. So just, it's weird how that stuff works. But the other reason I'm playing this song is because I don't know why, but every time I think of, you know, Hal Jordan's kind of uh, identity crisis that he struggles with for the first eight issues of this series, I don't know why, but this song is always what I think of. I don't always think of Hal Jordan when I hear this song, but when I read this story arc, the how Jordan goes through the sort of character arc that he goes through. I don't know why, but Walking in Memphis is just that's maybe not the first thing, but it's in the top five things that I think of. You know, so to me, there's just some sort of uh, personal resonance that this song has uh, to this issue and to how how Jordan in this moment. You know, as he goes through this character journey. Right? Not pretending it makes sense. I'm just saying it's real. So. And that, I think, is pretty much it for Green Lantern number eight. So, and as it happens, I think that's basically it for me this week. So, as to next week, I'm going to wrap up my January 1991 miniseries by talking about Spider-Man number six. But that's for next week. So, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So, bye, everybody. I will see you all next week. blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain, rain.
Hey everybody, Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, Big Magnus, Big Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is the Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of the Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at twotruefreaks.com as well as iTunes. Enjoy time travel in general and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan and I will be your host. Together we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week we will take a look at the Superman family of titles Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman, and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? 
feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. Mm-hmm.